0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 8, Part 3 It seems, then, that we must next consider democracy, how it comes into being, and what character it has when it does so, so that, knowing in turn the character of a man who resembles it, we can present him for judgment. That would be quite consistent with what we've been doing. Well, isn't the city changed from an oligarchy to a democracy in some such way as this, because of its insatiable desire to attain what it has set before itself as the good, namely, the need to become as rich as possible? In what way? Since those who rule in the city do so because they own a lot, I suppose they're unwilling to enact laws to prevent young people who've had no discipline from spending and wasting their wealth, so that by making loans to them, secured by the young people's property, and then calling those loans in, they themselves become even richer and more honored. Well, that's their favorite thing to do. So isn't it clear by now that it is impossible for a city to honor wealth and, at the same time, for its citizens to acquire moderation? but one or the other is inevitably neglected? That's pretty clear. Because of this neglect, and because they encourage bad discipline, oligarchies not infrequently reduce people of no common stamp to poverty. That's right. And these people sit idle in the city, I suppose, with their stings and weapons, some in debt, some disenfranchised, some both, hating those who've acquired their property plotting against them and others, and longing for a revolution. They do. The money makers, on the other hand, with their eyes on the ground, pretend not to see these people, and by lending money they disable any of the remainder who resist, exact as interest many times the principal sum, and so create a considerable number of drones and beggars in the city. A considerable number, indeed. In any case, they are unwilling to quench this kind of evil as it flares up in the city, either in the way we mentioned, by preventing people from doing whatever they like with their own property, or by another law which would also solve the problem. What law? The second best one, which compels the citizens to care about virtue by prescribing that the majority of voluntary contracts be entered into at the lender's own risk. For lenders would be less shameless then in their pursuit of money in the city, and fewer of those evils we were mentioning just now would develop. Far fewer. But as it is, for all these reasons, the rulers in the city treat their subjects in the way we described. But as for themselves and their children, don't they make their young fond of luxury, incapable of effort either mental or physical, too soft to stand up to pleasures or pains, and idle besides? Of course. And don't they themselves neglect everything except making money, caring no more for virtue than the poor do? Yes. But when rulers and subjects in this condition meet on a journey or some other common undertaking, it might be a festival, an embassy, or a campaign, or they might be shipmates or fellow soldiers, and see one another in danger, in these circumstances are the poor in any way despised by the rich? Or rather... Isn't it often the case that a poor man, lean and suntan, stands in battle next to a rich man, reared in the shade and carrying a lot of excess flesh, and sees him panting and at a loss? And don't you think that he'd consider that it's through the cowardice of the poor that such people are rich, and that one poor man would say to another when they met in private, These people are at our mercy. They're good for nothing. I know very well that's what they would do. Then, as a sick body needs only a slight shock from outside to become ill, and is sometimes at civil war with itself even without this, so a city in the same condition needs only a small pretext, such as one side bringing in allies from an oligarchy, or the other from a democracy, to fall ill, and to fight with itself, and is sometimes in a state of civil war even without any external influence. Absolutely. And I suppose that democracy comes about when the poor are victorious, killing some of their opponents and expelling others, and giving the rest an equal share in ruling under the Constitution, and for the most part assigning people to positions of rule by lot. Yes, that's how democracy is established, or because those on the opposing side are frightened into exile. Then how do these people live? What sort of constitution do they have? It's clear that a man who is like it will be democratic. That is clear. First of all, then, aren't they free? And isn't the city full of freedom and freedom of speech? And doesn't everyone in it have the license to do what he wants? Well, that's what they say, at any rate. And where people have this license, it's clear that each of them will arrange his own life in whatever manner pleases him. It is then I suppose that it's most of all under this Constitution that one finds people of all varieties. Of course. Then it looks as though this is the finest or most beautiful of the Constitutions, for, like a coat embroidered with every kind of ornament, this city, embroidered with every kind of character type, would seem to be the most beautiful. And many people would probably judge it to be so, as women and children do when they see something multicolored. They certainly would. It's also a convenient place to look for a constitution. Why's that? Because it contains all kinds of constitutions on account of the license it gives its citizens. So it looks as though anyone who wants to put a city in order, as we were doing, should probably go to a democracy, as to a supermarket of constitutions, pick out whatever pleases him, and establish that well he wouldn't be at a loss for models at any rate in this city there is no requirement to rule even if you're capable of it or again to be ruled if you don't want to be or to be at war when the others are or at peace unless you happen to want it and there is no requirement in the least that you not serve in public office as a juror if you happen to want to serve even if there is a law forbidding you to do so Isn't that a divine and pleasant life while it lasts? It probably is, while it lasts. And what about the calm of some of their condemned criminals? Isn't that a sign of sophistication? Or have you never seen people who've been condemned to death or exile under such a constitution stay on at the center of things, strolling around like the ghosts of dead heroes, without anyone staring at them or giving them a thought? Yes, I've seen it a lot. And what about the city's tolerance? Isn't it so completely lacking in small-mindedness that it utterly despises the things we took so seriously when we were founding our city? Namely, that unless someone had transcendent natural gifts, he'd never become good unless he played the right games and followed a fine way of life from early childhood? Isn't it magnificent the way it tramples all this underfoot? by giving no thought to what someone was doing before he entered public life, and by honoring him if only he tells them that he wishes the majority well? Yes, it's altogether splendid. Then these and others like them are the characteristics of democracy, and it would seem to be a pleasant constitution which lacks rulers, but not variety, and which distributes a sort of equality to both equals and unequals alike. We certainly know what you mean. Consider, then, what private individual resembles it. Or should we first inquire, as we did with the city, how he comes to be? Yes, we should. Well, doesn't it happen like this? Wouldn't the son of that thrifty oligarch be brought up in his father's ways? Of course. Then he, too, rules his spendthrift pleasures by force the ones that aren't money-making and are called unnecessary? Clearly. But, so as not to discuss this in the dark, do you want us first to define which desires are necessary and which aren't? I do. Aren't those we can desist from, and those whose satisfaction benefits us rightly called necessarily? For we are by nature compelled to satisfy them both. Isn't that so? Of course. So we'd be right to apply the term necessary to them. We would. What about those that someone could get rid of if he practiced from youth on? Those whose presence leads to no good or even to the opposite. If we said that all of them were unnecessary, would we be right? We would. Let's pick an example of each so that we can grasp the patterns they exhibit. We should do that. Aren't the following desires necessary? The desire to eat to the point of health and well-being. And the desire for bread and delicacies. I suppose so. The desire for bread is necessary on both counts. It's beneficial, and unless it's satisfied, we die. Yes. The desire for delicacies is also necessary to the extent that it's beneficial to well-being. Absolutely. What about the desire that goes beyond these, and seeks other sorts of foods? that most people can get rid of, if it's restrained and educated while they're young, and that's harmful both to the body and to the reason and moderation of the soul, would it be rightly called unnecessary? It would indeed. Then wouldn't we also say that such desires are spendthrift, while the earlier ones are money-making, because they profit our various projects? Certainly. And won't we say the same thing about the desire for sex, and about other desires? Yes. And didn't we say that the person we just now called a drone is full of such pleasures and desires, since he is ruled by the unnecessary ones, while a thrifty oligarch is ruled by his necessary desires? We certainly did. Let's go back then, and explain how the democratic man develops out of the oligarchic one. It seems to me as though it mostly happens as follows. How? When a young man, who is reared in the miserly and uneducated manner we described, tastes the honey of the drones, and associates with wild and dangerous creatures who can provide every variety of multicolored pleasure in every sort of way, this, as you might suppose, is the beginning of his transformation from having an oligarchic constitution within him to having a democratic one. It's inevitable that this is how it starts. And, just as the city changed when one party received help from like-minded people outside, doesn't the young man change when one party of his desires receives help from external desires that are akin to them and of the same form? Absolutely. And I suppose that, if any contrary help comes to the oligarchic party within him, whether from his father or from the rest of his household, who exhort and reproach him, then there's civil war and counter-revolution within him, and he battles against himself. That's right. Sometimes the Democratic Party yields to the oligarchic, so that some of the young man's appetites are overcome. Others are expelled. A kind of shame rises in his soul, and order is restored. That does happen sometimes. But I suppose that, as desires are expelled, others akin to them are being nurtured unawares. And because of his father's ignorance about how to bring him up, they grow numerous and strong that's what tends to happen. These desires draw him back into the same bad company, and in secret intercourse breed a multitude of others. Certainly. And, seeing the citadel of the young man's soul empty of knowledge, fine ways of living, and words of truth, which are the best watchmen and guardians of the thought of those men whom the gods love, they finally occupy that citadel themselves. They certainly do. And in the absence of these guardians, false and boastful words and beliefs rush up and occupy this part of him. Indeed, they do. Won't he then return to these lotus-eaters and live with them openly? And if some help comes to the thrifty part of his soul from his household, won't these boastful words close the gates of the royal wall within him to prevent these allies from entering, and refuse even to receive the words of older private individuals as ambassadors? Doing battle and controlling things themselves, won't they call reverence foolishness, and moderation cowardice, abusing them and casting them out beyond the frontiers like disenfranchised exiles? And won't they persuade the young man that measured and orderly expenditure is boorish and mean, and joining with many useless desires, won't they expel it across the border? They certainly will. Having thus emptied and purged these from the soul of the one they've possessed and initiated in splendid rites, they proceed to return insolence, anarchy, extravagance, and shamelessness from exile in a blaze of torchlight, wreathing them in garlands and accompanying them with a vast chorus of followers. They praise the returning exiles and give them fine names, calling insolence good breeding, anarchy freedom, extravagance magnificence, and shamelessness courage. Isn't it in some such way as this? that someone who is young changes after being brought up with necessary desires to the liberation and release of useless and unnecessary pleasures? Yes, that's clearly the way it happens. And I suppose that after that he spends as much money, effort, and time on unnecessary pleasures as on necessary ones. If he's lucky, and his frenzy doesn't go too far, when he grows older and the great tumult within him has spent itself, he welcomes back some of the exiles, ceases to surrender himself completely to the newcomers, and puts his pleasures on an equal footing. And so he lives, always surrendering rule over himself to whichever desire comes along, as if it were chosen by lot. And when that is satisfied, he surrenders the rule to another, not disdaining any, but satisfying them all equally. That's right. And he doesn't admit any word of truth into the guardhouse. For if someone tells him that some pleasures belong to fine and good desires and others to evil ones, and that he must pursue and value the former and restrain and enslave the latter, he denies all this and declares that all pleasures are equal and must be valued equally. That's just what someone in this condition would do. And so he lives on, yielding day by day to the desire at hand. Sometimes he drinks heavily while listening to the flute, At other times, he drinks only water and is on a diet. Sometimes he goes in for physical training. At other times, he's idle and neglects everything. And sometimes he even occupies himself with what he takes to be philosophy. He often engages in politics, leaping up from his seat and saying and doing whatever comes into his mind. If he happens to admire soldiers, he's carried in that direction. If money makers, in that one. There's neither order nor necessity in his life, but he calls it pleasant free and blessedly happy, and he follows it for as long as he lives. You've perfectly described the life of a man who believes in legal equality. I also suppose that he's a complex man, full of all sorts of characters, fine and multicolored, just like the democratic city, and that many men and women might envy his life, since it contains the most models of constitutions and ways of living. That's right. Then shall we set this man beside democracy as one who is rightly called democratic? Let's do so. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend,